Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to the second season of Just Sustainability. At the end of the previous episode, we concluded with Erica Bailey Johnson telling me about the free store at Bemidji State University. Learning about the sorts of things that students tend to need led me to think about an old research project of mine about college student food access. Me mentioning that project spurred Erica to tell me about some programming at Bemidji State intended to teach students life skills, often ones related to indigenous life ways, and how developing that programming helped her to build more full and authentic relationships with her students. Here's that conversation. It's interesting that you uh, mentioned pots and pans and uh, like small appliances because uh, a few years ago, actually now, I was interviewing students to learn a little bit more about food access mm. uh, and find out like what were the things that were like kind of mediating their food access or that were like barriers to their food access or the food access of their friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things was, I mean, so like one of the obvious things was finances, right? Students would have to pay for all these things and sometimes we'd have to make those choices. But the 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 two ones I think that are, are less uh, talked about are uh, knowledge, right? Students just don't know how to cook and access to utensils, right? So students mm-hmm. might be inclined to cook, but pots and pans and like good quality knives and like, uh, right, like silverware and plates and stuff, those are often quite expensive and outside, uh, right, the, the capacity of students to buy, right? So like if you want yeah. to get a, a decent frying pan, a decent frying pan is like $40, $50. Yeah. Right? If you actually want something that's heavy <laughs> enough that you can, right? Cook something without just like, burning it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that comes from like somebody who wrote a, I remember um, in Morris when I wanted to go to the movies once with my friends and I had like, I can't remember if it was like three fifty or something. And I had $3, but none of us had any change or any more money. And so I wrote a 50 cent check. <laughs> I like to go to the movies. And so I totally get it. And yeah. And we have like lived that life and yeah, it's, it can be really tough. And one other thing, Clement, you said really, um, I'd like to speak about a little bit. And that is the, that whole part of like not knowing sort of how to cook, right? Like the process of it, of cooking. And so also at the same time as the free store was created early on, we also had a student that came into the office and he's like, you know, I really want to like, learn these skills um, of how to do things myself because you just said I didn't really get taught any of it. Um, I don't know how to do a lot of these things and I really like to learn. And so we ultimately came up with this idea of these traditional skills workshops, which we've been hosting for probably 10 years now. And we have one a month typically, and it's anywhere from Man, we've had ones on butchering a deer (laughs) all the way to uh, sewing on a button, um, cooking, all kinds of different cooking classes. We did canning peaches and uh, what are some of the other ones? Knitting. um, We did like a quill quill, uh, pin workshop, like porcupine quills. So some art related things. Yeah. And so that's been another really fun where students kind of either come in with skills that they don't even realize that they have that nobody else does, or they have a question. And so we can help find somebody that can teach that skill. I know I've also done skills on how to take care of houseplants. Um, we have one student who's working right now on preparing a workshop on how to make an apple pie 
which um, we have a apple, apple trees on campus. And so as one thing I was like, yeah, it'd be really cool if we could like use the, the apples from campus to make like pie. And so she knows how to make pies and is going to, going to work on that for a traditional skills workshop. <laughs> I want to ask you more about that because that sounds fascinating to me because awesome, right? Because uh, yeah, so I, I've run into the same sort of experience when I talk to students that they want some more of these practical skills on just how to do things on a day-to-day basis, right? Yes. Uh, oftentimes things are on YouTube, but it's like some of the more basic things like, right, like, you know, how to like cut up a piece of meat that's not going to be on on youtube so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it so, might be but i don't know <laughs> yes I don't, I don't know but uh yeah so i, I want to ask like how did you well so you mentioned that some of them were, were born uh, some of the the workshops were born out of student questions how did you identify like what were the right skills or like and how do you find the people to teach them so, like mm. yeah, yeah just like talk me through the process of how you put that program together yeah, because it, it actually, like, was, it evolved. Um, we started at the beginning with thinking that we should hire somebody in our community. We had someone that was interested in, like, sort of being that facilitator or moderator. I don't know what you'd call it, but so we've hired a community member, and they actually coordinated all the workshops. So they either taught, like, I think we started with a bread-making one, and so the person had the skills, so he had, you know, sign-up sheets and um, and then did this bread making workshop. But then the next year we realized that we didn't like, we had a lot of, um, the person wasn't interested in doing that anymore. And so we had to look at alternatives. And so we realized we had a lot of the like knowledge right within our office or within the campus community, or we knew people in the community. And so we tried just reaching out to people. And one other thing is, is, um, we have a green fee at our university. So every student pays $7.50 per semester. And that leaves us with money that goes towards student employment. It goes towards uh, staff employment. So my position and Jordan's position partially come out of the green fee. And then we have also some like quite a bit left over for projects. And this traditional skills is a great example of how we use that money. So if you need supplies, like we always try to get enough so the student is able to go home and like do it for themselves. So if, for example, we did, um, right now one of the students is working on, uh, I think she's working on, oh man, it's something with beeswax. <laughs> oh, it's, it's like trying to make those uh, saran wrap replacement cover things. And so she's, working on the supplies and we always are like, try to get enough. We go, we shoot for usually around like 10, 12, 15 students in a class when they're in person or if they're more comfortable more, but we just work with the individuals. So that's kind of what that's look, that looks like. And I brought up the green fee because it'll help pay for supplies. It can also help pay for the student for their time for planning and preparing and delivering the workshop. And then we also make it so it's free for students. So no cost for students to participate in a traditional skills workshop. And then they get like the stuff to be able to start it at their own place. And then we charge $7 for non-students. So non-students, like faculty, staff, community members can sign up, but it, does, it, is, it comes with a cost um, for them. So that's kind of how we organize the payment. And then to your question about process and how we, so we did start with someone organizing it that was not within our office. And then 
we transitioned to organizing it within our office. And then it just, it just kind of, I don't know, it happens in this magical way where either we have ideas in our office, students will come in and ask questions, a faculty will approach us and say, you know, I really want to like teach someone how to make kombucha. <laughs> I know last year we had one of our deans that really had been, he'd been making sourdough bread forever. He's like, Erica, I really would love to teach you know students how to make sourdough bread. So he led one of our sourdough bread making workshops. And so it's this, like we just keep track on our board of um, ideas and people. And I always tell the students, there's a couple different ways to do it. Like you can either try to figure out something you think students would like to know about, you know, and go ask, ask people. And then you can try to learn how to do it. So you're comfortable teaching it and practice a few times. <laughs> you know, that's always a good thing to do. And so that's one way is like within our office, we can do that. Or you can just be the facilitator. So if you need somebody that needs to have kept bees, like start asking around and or ask, you know, like I can find somebody that's kept bees and we can reach out and we can find that person that is the expert that would be willing to share that knowledge with students. Uh, so there's it's like kind of a couple ways that we go about that process. And um, I guess we've never really had any problems trying to either come up with a topic or find people that are able and willing to share that knowledge. And it's just been a really fun um, program that's run through this space. I actually another follow-up question about, so uh, while you were talking, it, was, it occurred to me that, uh, so like a program like that would be a really useful tool for like thinking about reclaiming traditional like life ways, right? So like, mm -hmm. Right. So like I I know like at Morris, one of the things we're often thinking about is decolonizing our curriculum or like and thinking about like uh just sort of in general decolonization, right? Given mm -hmm. our history. And what and so like a lot of our programming is about having workshops about like beadwork or like, you know, making drums or like right doing kind of uh native traditional practices. Does yeah. that tie into like that program as well? So you had mentioned things like kombucha and sourdough. And mm -hmm. like, you know, butchering a deer, which I guess that is actually probably so do those things tie together too? Like for sure. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah. We so I mean what the one workshop that comes to mind right away is this porcupine quill. Um it was like she you could either make earrings or or a pin out of porcupine quills. And we just did that one last year and it was a huge hit. So, and they were beautiful and it was really kind of fun because <laughs> I, actually, I actually was driving in one day and I knew this workshop was coming up in a couple of weeks and I saw a porcupine that had gotten um, hit on the road and it looked like it was in good shape. You know, like sometimes they're really kind of not in good shape, <laughs> but this one was like, it looked pretty whole and I stopped and I turned around and it was, it was really beautiful. And so I, I texted her and let her know that I had this, the one that was leading the workshop, I let her know I had this porcupine. And so she came and picked it up and used the quills from that porcupine <laughs> to do this workshop. And definitely like there's a, yeah, there's a connection. And I know we've been talking about connecting our traditional skills workshops with other departments. So sometimes we would connect with uh, the outdoor program center we would do like we, I think we did one on snowshoe um, 
you know, like uh, weaving or whatever you call it. So weaving your snowshoes. And then I know that the American Indian Resource Center has done some on making moccasins. And so we've either partnered or just helped them advertise for it. And so that's another way. But yeah, and the, the other thing I want to emphasize with thinking about decolonizing is I think it's really powerful for students to realize that they have this gift, right? Like they have this knowledge that they've learned from their families, communities that they can share, like they are the experts. And so to have um, faculty and staff come into workshops where they're learning from students, to me, is just a beautiful thing. So I just want to emphasize that too, because I think that's another, like we all in these institutions of higher learning work in a very hierarchical <laughs> like structure. And so any way that we can try to to reduce that. And I think this is a really good example of that is important. No, I think that's exactly right. Because I'm thinking back on my own personal experience. And one of the things that, right, so I've been in Morrison eight years now. And one of the things I remember most clearly is actually learning how to braid corn and how to nixtamalize like flint corn from a student, right? Because mm. it was something I, you know, like I had no idea how to do. And that, that switching of roles, right? From being like, you know, normally an educator to being like, the learner and having a student who was mm -hmm. in my class was teaching me. It was a, it was a wonderful experience, right? It, it, it made our relationship so much fuller, right? To, to, yeah. to push those rules to be more equal. Yeah. And I think like, yeah, that's so beautiful because to me, I mean, I teach um, a class a semester too called people of the environment and I've really embraced in the last, like, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so, so one of the seven grandfathers is humility and humility basically says like, we are just a part of creation. Nothing is above or below. Like um, we don't know everything, you know, so you come forward with that way. And I really try to do that in my classes. And I think it speaks to what you're saying about, um, and it's really freeing is the word I'd almost use is to describe that because you, you enter into this space being okay with not knowing, right? Like I say a lot, like, oh, I don't know. Like, let's look that up. You know, that's a really good question. Or let's like research that. Or does anybody else in the class know, you know, like, so you just, you come in with this, this way of, um, of kind of talking and communicating with this class or with these, you know, with these people that you're, that you're with. And, and I have never, I, I think that a lot of faculty, this is just from interactions, but I think a lot of them are concerned that you don't look like the expert all of a sudden, right? Like you don't seem like the person that has the leadership and the, and the, the knowledge in the classroom, like you're not at the head, right? But I have never found that in my classroom. Like the relationship that we build based upon this understanding of mutual um knowledge that we all bring is really quite awesome like it's very empowering for everybody to be good with like i know some things and i don't know lots of things <laughs> and that's totally fine so um i think i think all of us coming into a space like that is is very respectful and very um yeah very powerful Talking about having more authentic relationships with folks, let Eric and I to talk about the social hierarchies in higher ed and how we need to examine those social hierarchies to be better educators and relationship builders. Here's that discussion. There is this strong, like, 
desire, well, not desire, but this, maybe a culture of expertise and like a, a pedigree and of like, right, like hierarchy in, in higher education. And I think, right, when we have those hierarchies, uh, they're constrained to everybody, right? Like even the folks who are like mm-hmm. sort of the, tie, the top of the hierarchy, because you're constrained by the roles that you're supposed to play. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when you challenge those roles, it's when you have the really truly authentic interactions with other folks. Yeah. 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 So good. I just had this conversation with somebody today about, and he was saying, you know, he's a, he's an older white man and he's really, really thinking about how he's been trained to think of leadership or his role as a leader, right? He's an executive director, like, and how he's supposed to be. And he's just, he's, yeah, he's just like, ah, (laughs) there's so many things that I was told are good and right. And the way I'm supposed to be, or people aren't gonna like respect me or listen to me, um, that he's just reevaluating in a really intense and really uh, humbling way. Yeah. And I also, I, I find that right. When, when we do that, we become more effective at building relationships, which, mm. right, as you, I think you, you noted earlier, are, are sort of essential at being effective at, like, doing the sort of things we want to do, right? Like, sustainability, equity, these are mm-hmm. all sort of things that involve building relationships between people, right? Like, because it's all about these systems where everybody plays some role in the system and, like, everybody interfaces in the system in different ways. So we need everybody working together. And yeah. that re- requires strong relationships where, you know, that are based on sort of, you know, mutual respect, mutual, like, uh, right. Like uh, mutual, maybe, like, even mutual, like affection, right. Yeah. You, 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 yeah. you work better with people you like rather than just yeah. someone you talk with. And yeah. I, I think when we get rid of those like artificial hierarchies and right, recognize that we each have something to contribute and each has something to learn from one another. Uh, right. Relationship yeah. Oh man. That is so true. And I actually earlier this morning, I just had this conversation too. And I bring it up a lot in my work is I always try to, if I feel like I'm entering into this collaborative space, like supposedly collaborative, right? <laughs> Where I'm, I'm like um, the one who's organizing it. I come in and sometimes if I feel like people already have made up their mind, I usually will start lately with this, this um, thing. And I can't remember where I read it. But it was this beautiful paragraph about how we should all come into these spaces with knowing that we bring a peace, right? Like we come into this space knowing that our voice is important, like we need to speak up, even though sometimes it's hard because <laughs> you sometimes feel like you're on a different planet. But like you need to speak up, you need to find your voice because it needs to be heard. And that, but that your one way isn't the only way. Like everybody around that table also has a peace. And the answer that you're trying to reach is somewhere in the middle of everybody. Like, and you can't create it and you can't get there unless everybody realizes that, you know? And so if somebody just comes in with this, like, oh, here's what we need to do and let's move on and, you know, let's figure out something else. Like, it's just not like most people are going to be frustrated and upset and they're not going to feel heard. And so I oftentimes will just remind people and even in the students in my class too, like, just remember, like your voice is important. You bring a piece like, and that there's not one right way. You know, we need to figure this out together. And, and I think that's just a really, really good way to do those collaborative um, 
be in those collaborative spaces. At this point, I turn the reins of the conversation over to Erica. She took that opportunity to talk about allyship, being mixed-raced and bicultural, how we might think of the world differently to build a better future, and how we might better approach some of the hard truths about the world and with the difficulty of change. So what's something that you would like to talk about that I haven't asked about yet? <laughs> oh my gosh, Clement, you just think of everything. <laughs> That's so awesome. I love that. Um, so I haven't really like thought too much about uh, what, yeah. And so I usually um, fly by the seat of my pants a little bit, but we've got a lot of work going on around uh, race relations in our community, um, what it means to be an ally. I think one of the things that that I just keep thinking about lately is that question of like, how do you be an ally? And I say that because I am mostly white and I recognize that and I recognize what that means when I go into a store, when I drive my car, um, when I go into a relationship with others. Uh, so I'm very aware of, you know, of that piece of myself. And then I also have this indigenous piece of myself where um, like I'm rooted and embedded in this place in Bemidji and work with like lots of indigenous people. I'm an enrolled member of the Red Lake Nation now because they changed their um, enrollment blood quantum this past fall. And so I'm actually, I was eligible. And so I applied to be a member and I'm now a member of the band, but still like mostly white along with like 20 other things <laughs> that are within me. And so I just keep thinking about a lot of the, like a lot of the prophecies that, you know, our people are told and go by with our lives. And one of them is that there'll, there'll eventually be a new people that comes about during this eighth fire. And that begins to, uh, understand the world in a different way, operate in a different way. And I feel like we're entering that space, honestly. I feel like I've met people that I can, I think, are these new people. Um, so it's, it's really, right now, it's just like, how do we keep, <laughs> keep that going with everything else that's happening, with COVID, with um, you know, the George Floyd with climate change, with all these other really big issues that have people kind of living in fear. But how do we instead like begin to build this foundation of hope and understanding that we're all different and that that's beautiful? So, and that we need to be different or otherwise we can't figure it out. <laughs> so I think um, those are just some of the like thoughts that I'm having now uh, about the situation that we're in and about where we need to be headed and about how we continue to have hope to build a better future. Because quite honestly, when I ask my students, if they think about the fate of human species a thousand years from now, 2000 years from now, they usually come up with two answers. One of them is that like, we're either on another planet or in space somewhere. And then the other one is that we're extinct. 
<laughs> and I was like, oh. And then there are a few. Actually, I'd have to say the last few years, there's been, it seems like more that have been hopeful about us being able to figure it out. Like, how do we live on this planet in a good way with each other and then with the rest of our relatives? And so that, I think, is what we need to be asking. And that's what we need to be um, hopeful for, is that we, once we get our minds together, you know, to, to solve an issue like that, like, what is that? You know, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, and just having hope that we can do it, I guess. I think that's exactly right. I think where you can view all the things happening now as sort of terrible things, which they are, right? I mean, there are many bad things happening now. But those bad things, we can react to them right, by being sad, by being angry. But mm-hmm. we also can react to them by making that change that's necessary, that they, that they demonstrate is necessary. Mm-hmm. And, that, and I think right, in every sort of tragedy, there's an opportunity to be better. Mm-hmm. And I keep like, and I'll share this on here. It's sort of a private thought, but um, I've been thinking a lot about COVID and I, I don't live in fear of it. Um, I do take precautions, you know, I follow all the recommendations and those kinds of things, but I don't live in fear because I'm going to be taken at some point and put back into the earth, right? Like I'll come home to mother earth and uh, that time will come. It comes for all of us. And so I think about COVID in that way. And I just always tell people like, you know, I might not make it home today. Like I drive my car and probably more likely to get in a car accident or something like that. And that might be my time too. And it's not like I'm going to live in constant fear of death. Like to me, death is quite beautiful. It's um, something that we all, that we all go to. And so, uh, and I guess that's just kind of relates to the hope piece, you know, with COVID, like not living in fear of getting this disease and being done with life. Like my day might be coming. I don't know, but I'm okay. Like it's, it's all right. My day will come at some point (laughs) and along with everybody else's. So I just, um, and it's been, it's been really kind of fun as a mom to watch my two boys because they also like uh, you know obviously how your parents respond to things is how they learn (laughs) and so my friend my um younger son had a friend over and hit like they were obviously a family that was more fearful and so he was talking about how they're not sleeping you know they're all anxious all the time and anxiety ridden and read (laughs) my younger son I felt sort of bad but he's like I just heard him say he's like oh we don't even care (laughs) and I um I felt a little guilty because I'm like we do care you know like we are wearing our masks and we're trying you know to stay home most of the time and we're not doing anything you know that puts us in this like this risk or risking others um but we're also just not living in fear and I think that that's like a different I don't know like a different mindset right like because you can you can do all the same actions of somebody that's living in fear, but yeah. you don't have fear, right? Yeah. Well, so no. I don't know. If, yeah, that makes sense. But I just um, I feel I feel good about kind of how our family's been handling that and how our boys have been understanding it. And um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like that can be kind of a message for 
for, for folks that's more positive and more hopeful. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I think what you're, you're catching on to is right. Like the fear of death, right. If you, you know, listen to Shakespeare or like Star Trek, uh, which Star <laughs> Trek, which Shakespeare, it's, it's, it's not the fear of death per se, but it's the fear of change, the fear of the unknown. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, I think, right. Sustainability is about embracing the change, embracing the unknown, right? Like, yeah. The, mm-hmm. it's resisting the status quo and the reason why we maintain the status quo is because we're afraid of change we're afraid of the unknown and mm. so like we stick with the evil we know to avoid you know the avoid the possible good that we don't know yeah isn't that interesting that's such a good way to put that yeah yeah, yeah that's so true i i think um we definitely are fearful of change and honestly the only one of the main ways i talk about my work is is I'm constantly asking people to change, <laughs> like to consider change. The only constant is change, you know? So all of those things fit in with the work that I do. And and I think, honestly, I feel like the next level of human um, like evolution or existence is when we finally begin to listen to the earth again. Like we had, we knew how to do that in a good way. And then most of us have forgotten And so when we start to ultimately think and connect and build that relationship and listen to the earth, I feel like there's going to be a whole new like understanding of our place um, and our um, positive contributions, you know, that we can make to this world. So uh, I'm excited about that. Like, I hope, yeah, I hope I, I think I can begin to see some of that happening now. This brings us to the end of the conversation that I had with Erica Bailey Johnson. We talked about a wide range of topics, including teaching skills for living, being critical of social hierarchies, and how we might change the way we think about hard truths and work towards a better future. Please join me again in the next episode of Just Sustainability, where I'll introduce you to a colleague of mine, Gabe DeRosiers, who's an award-winning singer, dancer, and Nishinaabe Moen teacher. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, Please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute and the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.